So we have been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the things that I like to say on occasion is that here at Calvary, we will take a book of the Bible and we'll start in the beginning and we'll just begin studying through. We'll read it and then we will explain it. And so we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew back in chapter 10. Jesus has um, a teaching for his disciples. He's going to send them out at that time on a short-term missions trip, but he prepares them for some difficulties that would come later on. And so we we ended that, I I think it was uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and then we came into chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins in verse 1 and it says, now when Jesus had finished giving his instructions, or giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So what's taking place is that the the disciples are gone and uh, Jesus has sent them out. So Jesus is not there with his disciples. We went through the first few verses last week and we came to verse 7 and now Jesus is going to be speaking and in verse 7 it says, and uh, these men were going away. Jesus began to speak to the crowds, and it'll say about John. And so last week I had you underline the word crowds. Some of your Bibles might say multitudes. However it says it, you, you, you want to underline that. That's going to be very important for our study today. You don't want to lose sight of that. But in chapter 11, from, from the uh, very beginning to the very end, it's important to understand that Jesus is, and you want to write this down, Jesus is speaking to the crowd, not disciples. To the crowd, but not the disciples. And uh, when Jesus speaks to disciples, it's a very different message than when he speaks to, to the crowd. So we'll see that today. And uh, so, so Jesus is going to say today some very hard things that the crowd does not want to hear. They need to hear. And as we see what Jesus is saying today, my hope, my prayer is for each and every one of us that we don't find ourselves in the categories that Jesus is talking about, that, uh, that we've resolved those things and we're right where the Lord would have us to be. But he's speaking to a crowd that needs to hear this. So we're going to call this, we're going to begin with uh, this section calling this the three warnings to the crowd. I'm going to pick it up in verse 16. We left off last week in verse 15. And he says, but to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, uh, which is a funeral song, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds." So as, as Jesus begins this, he uses a, an illustration that would be very familiar with the people that, that he'd be speaking to. In those days, you would go to the market and uh, you, you would you'd bring your children to the market as, as you would be shopping and getting what you needed. Your children would play with the other children. The towns were very small, so everybody would get together. Well, there were two, two games that the children loved to play. One of them, they would say, let's play wedding. And uh, so you'd say, well, it's going to be a fun game, you know, it's a, it's a celebration game. So they say, let's play, play, play wedding. But as our story begins, Jesus says, you know, they, they wanted to celebrate, they wanted to do that, but somebody didn't want to play. So the idea is that somebody says, you know, I, I don't want to play wedding. I just, you know, I don't want to, I don't, you know, somebody will say, you know, I'll be the bride, you'll be the groom, but I don't want to play wedding. I don't want to play that game. Okay. Well, if you don't want to play wedding, then we'll play something a little bit sadder. How about not playing wedding? We'll just play funeral. And guess what? You get to be the dead guy. How's that? And so they say, well, I, I, don't, I don't want to play that game either. I don't like either of them. And uh, so the idea is that no matter what game those children played, they were just unhappy. Um, if you have children and your parents, you understand this, that 
there comes a day when one of your kids gets up and there's just nothing you can do to make them happy. You want to do this? No. I want to do that? No. And in my family, each kid chooses a day apparently, but there's always somebody that no matter what you do, and am I alone in this? Is this pretty much how it happens? You've all been there, right? Nothing you can do. Yeah, so we've all been there. So so he begins to say, you don't want to play this, the happy game? You don't want to play the sad game. You don't want to play wedding? You don't want to play funeral. So he says, so, uh, so he continues it on verse 18. He says, so, so John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say that he has a demon. So God had sent John the Baptist, uh, not John the Apostle, but John the Baptist just before Jesus to prepare people to then uh, follow Jesus. Now when John, John was more like in the funeral mode. He was very denunciatory. He was very condemning. He did not have a happy message. He was a man of God. He was more conservative than the Pharisees, we might say. Uh, he didn't hang out with a lot of people. He spent most of his time in the desert. And, uh, and so people would interpret his ascetic lifestyle of saying, well, he must be demonic. You know, after all, where do demonic people live? They live out in the desert. And, and he would wear uncomfortable clothing, and as you read uh, John's calling on his life, he, he would eat very, very simple food, and he would never have a glass of wine, any alcohol whatsoever. That was his calling. And people would look on at John and they'd say, you know, we don't like John. You know, I, I can't really receive from John. He's just too narrow. You know, he's just too grumpy. He's out there in the desert. So, so I, I, and, and so what they would do, because they didn't like John and his representation or presentation, they would say, well, I, I, I'm not even gonna, I can't receive from John, so I'm just not going to deal with the message. So on the other hand, they say, so you didn't like that. So if you don't like the funeral side, how about the wedding side? So Jesus says, verse, verse, um, what verse was that? Right here, verse 19. So the Son of Man, on the other hand, came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet again, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. So on the other hand, you have Jesus. Now Jesus was very different. He celebrated. He was very social. He would eat a number of different things. Uh, The only time that John would interact with a tax collector or a sinner was when they came to repent. Jesus, on the other hand, would eat with these people. John would never have a glass of wine. Jesus would have a glass of wine. And so he was very, very social. So you have John on the one side, you have Jesus on the other side, but they don't want to deal with the message. So instead of dealing with the message, they just make false accusations at the messenger. So, well, I can't receive from him. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He hangs out with sinful people. How can I receive from him? So they didn't want to hear it because they, they didn't like the messenger. So here, here's what's so important in this, and you want to write this down. The, the first warning we'd see, that not liking the messenger doesn't remove responsibility for receiving the message. So it's not whether you like the, the, the messenger, you still have to deal with the message. So it's not like on that day when they stand before God that they say, well, you know, I didn't like John. I mean, he was too uptight. I didn't like Jesus. He was too social. I mean, you stand before him. The only thing that matters is what did you do with the message? What did you do with Jesus? What did you do with the message that he brought? So they rationalized their rejection of the message. Uh, They would rationalize that because they didn't like the messenger, they didn't have to deal with the message. It's, It's the same thing today. People rationalize not to not deal with the message because they don't like the messenger. So I'll start it and you finish it. I don't go to church because after all, all those churches really want, all they want is your... 
So they don't want to deal with the message because they don't like the messenger. It doesn't take away the responsibility. You know, those churches are just a bunch of... You've heard this before. You've heard this before. (laughs) And you know what? We are. We're a bunch of hypocrites, aren't we? Every one of us wants to be better than we are. And, and, And so what they do is they think by by saying things about the messenger, they never have to deal with the message, but it doesn't take away the responsibility of what you do with the message. So, so that's the, the responsibility doesn't go away. Does that make sense? So they don't like John. He's too uptight. They don't like Jesus because he's too social. And, uh, and so now Jesus, by the way, this was the, the nicest thing Jesus has to say. Now he's going to say some things that are going to hurt some feelings. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. And he says, and then he began, then after he said that, he began to denounce the cities which most of his miracles were done. Now I want you to underline because they did not repent. Don't lose sight of that. And he begins by saying, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida. Now very quickly, Jesus says, woe to you. Is that a good thing or not so good thing? Not so good thing. It's pretty bad. So this is very, very bad. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, Tyre is up in Lebanon, a Gentile city, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloths and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, and there's different ways of translating this. We'll look at it. I'll just read it from mine. It says, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. Now, my Bible says Hades. How many of your Bibles say hell? Good, good. Any over here? Good, 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 good. All right, that's the best way of translating that word. He's, he's contrasting. Some of you have a translation that says you won't go to the sky, but you're going to go down below. And uh, they, they've really watered down what Jesus is conveying here. I'm not sure why they do that. But he's talking about heaven and he's talking about hell and he's contrasting. So he says, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would, it would have remained today. Nevertheless, I say to you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Day of uh, Sodom than for you. So here he contrasts three Gentile cities. You have Sodom, which was a Gentile city, and if you were Jewish 2,000 years ago, that would have been like the epitome of sin. So, so just to say that would be the epitome of sin. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities. They worshiped pagan gods. And then you have the other three cities, which are Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, uh, what, what I wanted to do is just show you why this is so important. And we, we've talked about the... the um, the land of Israel. And down in the bottom of Israel you have what's called the Dead Sea and that area is called Judea. And uh, you have towns like Jerusalem and Bethany and things like that. That's in the southern part. But Jesus ministers up in the northern part, at least at this point, in the area called the Galilee, which has the Sea of Galilee. Everybody see that? And uh, then you see that kind of red circle looking thing. And what I wanted to highlight is at the top of the Sea of Galilee there are three towns, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. Does everybody see that? And they're all about a mile apart, just about a mile apart. Maybe, maybe a mile and a half, but, but very, very close together. Capernaum was actually the city that Jesus housed or headquartered his ministry. So uh, when he was in Capernaum, he was home. That's the headquarters of his ministry. So 
what was important about that is that they had seen, says if you if they even if anybody else had seen the miracles that you guys have seen, they would have repented. But you guys never repented. What miracles did they see? Well, so far in the Gospel of Matthew, they've seen the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, and she touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. The healing of Jairus' daughter. You have the guy who uh, couldn't walk and they lowered him through the roof. And so that took place in that area. The guy who had the withered hand, and he says, stretch out your hand, and he was healed. So, So they saw these things. They saw these things. Now what's important in this and what's important for, for us and in, in, in the nation that we live in, the, these people in Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, they didn't respond to Jesus with hostility. They didn't run him out of town. They just kind of disregarded him. They had all the evidence in the world. And they were like, mm, okay, so, so what? So here, here's what, what you want to write down. He, he says, woe to you. And so the, what we're going to find, the second thing is going to be, many will be condemned not for their hostility, but for their complacency toward him. Their complacency toward him. They weren't hostile to Jesus. They just never did anything with it. It wasn't a big deal for them. They saw the miracles, but, but they never did anything with it. Now I've put there on your outline what Jesus says. I, I think it, it brings out the translation a little bit better. And uh, So it's God words, God words God's word translation there in your outline. It says, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to heaven? And it's really in a question. Do you think you're going to heaven? Because they really did. They said, you know, we're Jewish. God, we're God's people. Certainly we're going to heaven. We're good people. And, uh, you know, so, so certainly. He says, so you think you're going to heaven, but the reality, he says, no, you will go down to hell. The Greek word is Hades, and, and, and it uh, re- per- pertains to hell. It says, for if the miracles had been worked in you that, that had been worked in Sodom, it would still be here today. I can guarantee that Judgment Day will be better for Sodom than for you. So they think they're okay with God, and they think they're going to heaven, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're really going to hell. Um, and and, and uh, the, the idea is that they had the opportunity, it was there in front of them, but they never did anything with it. They saw, they had the miracles. So I want you to write this down. As, as they had the op- op- opportunity, greater opportunity brings greater responsibility. Again, these people, and the reason it was so bad is they didn't drive Jesus out of town. They weren't hostile. They just kind of disregarded it. Just, you know, it's not really a big thing for me. It's not my thing. And, and, and so he says, you, you had so much opportunity, so many miracles and yet you never repented. It was never important enough for you to check it out. Now when you, you uh, read commentaries on this, typically what happens is that there's a pause at this point and the commentator will say something like, um, we have no idea how, how uh, responsible we are in the West, in Western civilization because we have opportunity to check out the claims and find out the truth more than any other time, more than any other place in the world. And yet the vast majority of people, they're not hostile, they're just complacent. And uh, many think that they're okay. And and here, apparently, being complacent uh, seems to have um, more um, consequence than than being hostile. And so we, we, we see that. So we see that in, in, our, in our world. You know, in, 
in Western civilization here in the United States of America, we might be drifting away, but there's still, they say, a church on every corner. There's still Christian radio. There's still Christian TV. There's still believers around. There, there's enough evidence for people to, to take the, the initiative to find out. But then they, they respond and say, well, you know, it's not really, really for me. You know, I'm glad you found that for you. But, you know, and they're just kind of complacent. Jesus says, you think you're going to heaven, but you're really going to hell. Uh, you've, have you ever heard somebody say something like, well, what about, what about that person who lives in that faraway country up there in the top of the mountains and they've never had the opportunity to, to hear the message? What about them? You ever heard anything like this? Well, what Jesus is saying here is don't worry about them. You have the opportunity. You better take the initiative because uh, it's, it's going to be worse for you than those who didn't have the opportunity. That make sense? Verse 24 he says, nevertheless, I say to you that it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. You know, they didn't see miracles in Sodom. They didn't have uh, a, a lot of opportunity. So he says, it's really going to be more tolerable for them. When you go through the Bible, what you find is that in heaven, there are degrees of reward. But this tells us that in hell, there are degrees of punishment. And you want to write that down. Degrees of punishment. And apparently uh, complacency when somebody has the opportunity and they don't do anything with it. That's something that he takes very seriously. Again, Jesus is speaking to the crowd in this chapter. So speaking to the crowd, he's not not liking the the messenger doesn't excuse us from having to deal with the message. Or uh, being complacent when we have the opportunity Uh, leads to severe eternal consequences. But then, verse 25, he says, uh, and I'm going to ask you to underline a couple of things as we we unpack this. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And and here here is, uh, he's speaking to the Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You, and that's to, to the Father, have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. And so what I, what I want to just say here is that it's the Father who's doing the revealing in this verse. And just, just make note of that, and we'll come back to this verse. Verse 26, he says, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son, underline this, reveals to him. The Son reveals to him. I'm going to come back in a few minutes to uh, verses 25 and 26, but I wanted to just highlight in verse 25 you have the Father who is revealing, and in verse 27 you have the Son who is revealing. Did everybody see that? It's going to be very, very important for our study. So I'll give you the punchline and then we'll unpack it. What he's saying here is you can't know, you can't have or know God apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus. No one can know God apart from Jesus because it's Jesus who reveals the Father. And if it's the Father, he's revealing the Son. So we see that. Uh, Another place there in your outline in John 6, it will say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you have the Father who is drawing. He's revealing Jesus. 
So you, you can't separate God the Father from God the Son. You, you can't, can't do that because they point to one another. All Christians believe in, in one eternal truth and that is that all Christians believe that Jesus is God and everyone else believes that Jesus is not God. Very important, very important. Tuck that away. So in 1 John it will say, and, and think this through, he will say, who is the liar? but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. I'm telling that. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son, I'm that, does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So Jesus is God. We would say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All Christians believe that Jesus is God. You can't separate them. Why is it so important? They wanted a God apart from Jesus. You and I live in a country where it is very popular to talk about God as long as you don't mention Jesus. So here in our country you have the big debate, the big debate, you know, we all want on our money, in God we trust. And we want when we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we want to say one nation under God. So let's say you go to one of those rallies where they're saying, in God we trust, one nation under God, and they give you the platform. And so you walk up to the platform and you say, we need to keep one nation under God in the pledge. We need to keep in God we trust on the money. And here's why, because Jesus has been the one who's been holding this country. He's been, Jesus has been the one who's been guiding this country. Jesus is the one who has been blessing this country. And we cannot do this without Jesus's blessing. We cannot do this without Jesus's guidance. What do you think they'll do? They'll take you off the stage and they'll say, no, no, we talk about God. We don't talk about Jesus. And, and, and here, here's, here's why this is so important. That little verse that we just read, when you separate God the Father from God the Son, somebody said, well, they're they're very close. They're talking about God. No, 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 no. When you separate God the Father from God the Son, he says, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit of the Antichrist would love to get all of Americans talking about God. Just don't mention Jesus. That's no longer the God of the Bible. It's no longer the God that you and I serve. Does that make sense? And so you can't have God without Jesus. They wanted a God without Jesus. So uh, a few years ago, because I'm a pastor, we would get these phone calls. And every time there's like a park or a pavilion or something like that, they want somebody to come in as a minister and they want you to, to do the invocation, the prayer kind of thing. And uh, I would always say, no, 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 no. I don't do, I don't do that. First of all, because I hate dressing up in a suit on Saturday in the middle of June. And uh, so, but they, they, always, they would always call. And so finally somebody said, you know, it'll be good, you can go, it'll represent the church, you know, let them know we're here, that sort of thing. So I went. Now, um, so I went to bless or to, to pray the invocation over a pavilion, which led to a deeper theological question, does God bless pavilions? I, I, do, do you need to bless that? So I go, now if you and I go sit down and we have lunch, I might say, Father, thank you for the food, the fellowship, amen. You know, I, I don't feel the need to say in Jesus' name uh, because the truth is you and I as Christians can only pray in Jesus' name. 
So it's not like we have to say, in Jesus' name, like we're signing off on the CB, you know, 10-4, good buddy, you know, and we, we attach that. Now, we, we do that, but, but I don't always feel the need to do that because the, 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 it's a given. If I'm a Christian, I'm praying in Jesus' name. If I go into an environment, and in that environment, they want somebody to come in, and they want somebody to give kind of like the universal message, you know, to pray to the great whoever, whatever, out there in the great wherever, you know, whoever, whatever, wherever, that sort of thing. And when I'm in that situation, I have to say, it is in Jesus' name that I pray. And, and so, so they brought me up in front of the pavilion. Here's Pastor Dan over at Calvary, and I walk up, suit, sweating terribly. And so I walk up, and I pray, God bless this pavilion, bless the concrete and the steel and lights, and you know, a little breeze would be nice. And, and then, but when I ended, I said, and, and this I pray in Jesus' name. And you could heard a hush. By the time I got back to the office, the emails had already started coming in. How could you say that? This is an ecumenical prayer thing. It's like, well, I'm not ecumenical. I follow Jesus and Jesus alone, you know? So, now, so, so, um, so they were very hostile to that. Now, the good news is I've never been called again. <laughs> so, anyways, um, we're going to move on. But the idea is, is that, that you can't have the Father without the Son. Whoever tries that isn't confused. That's the spirit of the Antichrist. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. So Jesus, speaking to the crowd, shows them their eternal mistake. These are eternal mistakes. Not dealing with the message because you don't like the messenger. You're still responsible for the message. Uh, having the opportunity to find out and check it out, but never taking the opportunity. That's something that he takes very serious, the, the complacency. And, and wanting to have a God apart from Jesus. It's just, it that's, doesn't happen. It doesn't do that. So he says all that, but, he says, but here's some good news. Here's some good news. I'm going to pick it up back in verse 25. And in verse 25 it says this, At this time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and revealed them to infants. Some of your Bibles will say infants. Some of your Bibles will say babes. Uh, I, I like the uh, complete Jewish Bible because it brings out what, what's really intended there in that culture. There in your outline it says, it was at that time that Yeshua said, Yeshua is Jesus, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have concealed these things from the sophisticated and educated and revealed them to ordinary folks. Does everybody see that? And the Greek word there is nepios, and uh, I put there on your outline, uh, can mean an infant, a minor, or figuratively a simple-minded person or an immature Christian. And so it's just, just common folk, just ordinary folk. So go ahead and write this down. God reveals himself to ordinary people. That's the good news. And so, so, so those things that you think are okay are not okay, but let me give you the invitation, Jesus says. And so in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, um, th- this invitation, first of all, I want to highlight a couple of things. We could, there's a lot more we could talk about. But first of all, he invites us to come to him. Write that down. When The invitation is always to come to him. 
through all the verses in the Bible, it's always to come to Him. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, you, you open to Him. It's not an organization, an institution, a particular church. You come to Him. Now I would say that once you come to Him, He's probably going to place you in a, a, a certain church. But you go to Him and Him alone. And He says, I've taken this from the old King James, He says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And I'll talk about that word rest in a few moments. But you notice he says, labor and heavy laden. Labor, and you want to write this down, are the burdens that we take upon ourselves. If, uh, if you've ever felt like, you know, I'm good, but I'm never good enough, uh, and I need to do more and more and more for God to accept me somehow, some way, and I feel just inadequate, that's the burden that you're placing on yourself. He wants to take that away. He wants to give you rest. Then he says those who are heavy laden. Those would be the burdens that other people put on us. And we say that in the outline. Implies the burdens that others put on us. And in that day it was the Pharisees. You'd say I want to know the Lord and they would come and they'd place all of these burdens on you that you could never keep. And, and some of us have come from a place where Jesus said come to me and we wanted to go to him, but as we went, we encountered those who gave us a list of rules, rituals, regulations that he never talked about. And they put those on us. And so we became heavy laden. That is, those burdens were placed on us. So, so he says, but I, I want to take all that away and I want to give you rest. Now I love this word rest. There on your outline, an apono, uh, I might be mispronouncing that slightly, but I want you to notice, at least in Strong's, uh, what's missing here in, as far as the definition, reflexively to repo- repose, literally or figuratively, uh, uh, I'm not gonna, remain by implication, it means to, what's that word? Refresh, underline that. So far in the definition, they haven't used the word rest. Did you notice that? Uh, the word that they use is the word refresh. Now how is it translated into English? Well, there in your outline in the King James, it's translated as to take ease or refresh. Underline that means to give refreshment, take refreshment, or rest. It's, it's translated as rest. But I've always found it interesting that at least in Strong's, that the word rest is not even in the definition. But maybe, um, as I said a moment ago, we, we went to church and we wanted to find Jesus, but instead of finding Jesus, we found a list of rules, rituals, regulations, and we got anything but rest. Anything but rest. In verse 29 he says, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find, once again, same word, rest for your souls. Rest for your souls. When you and I think of a yoke, we think of you got two oxen together and you got the yoke that attaches them together and then uh, you kind of walk alongside. And so usually the, the illustration is told that Jesus is like, you know, the big ox with the little ox and so he carries, carries the weight. And that's good and that's kind of true. But in that society, in that culture, a yoke uh, was a teaching that was put out by a rabbi. So uh, write this down. A rabbi's interpretation was called the rabbi's yoke. So 
you'll have it talked about like the yoke of the Pharisees. That would be their interpretation. And in their interpretation, they give you a lot of rules and rituals and regulations. As you yoke themselves yourself with them, you would follow that. So the yoke was was a teaching, it was an interpretation. And most of the time, if you were a rabbi, you never spoke in your own yoke or in your own interpretation. What you would do is you'd say something like, you know, I'm Rabbi so-and-so, but Rabbi Ben-Gurion says this, and you would quote them. Where Jesus, as he comes in his own yoke, he says things like, uh, you have heard it said, he doesn't quote anybody else, he says, but I tell you. And uh, people are amazed because he was speaking with, his, with authority, and that was his yoke. So it was his teaching. So Jesus says if that's the case, his yoke is, is his burden is, well there in your outline, his yoke is easy and my burden is light. And his yoke following him is, is really not that complicated. It's, it's very easy. And uh, he does come alongside and empower. But here's what I, I, I love. In verse 29 he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So what I want you to write down is just a given. It's just that learning from him, we find that he is gentle and humble. That's who he is. I I say that because the more you learn about him, the more you learn that he's gentle and humble. Could I also just take it one step further? As a pastor, as pastors, we're called to represent him. So there's nothing about me being able to come here to represent myself, my ministry. If I follow the calling, I represent him. So far so good? And so if I'm going to represent him, it has to be in gentleness and humility. Be very careful when you go to places where the representation is anything but gentleness and, and humility. So I, I, I'm not going to name names or anything, but just, just be, be careful. That's who he is. He's gentle and he's humble. What I love as much of that is, is if I read it again, it says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's what he's saying, and you want to write this down. He promises that learning from him uh, leads to finding rest for our souls. Learning about him should lead to greater rest. But what I love is the word that that, that, that in the definition and the word there is refresh or refreshment. And so what he's saying literally is that learning of him should lead to greater refreshment. So I want to ask you, in your coming to him, has it meant that you embraced more rules, rituals, regulations that he never talked about? Uh, has it led to greater refreshment? And if it hasn't led to greater refreshment, are you sure that, that you've accepted the Jesus of the Bible who is humble and gentle? And so as we close today, I want to just, and I'm trusting that everybody here has embraced the Jesus who is humble and gentle and that your experience in him has led you to greater rest uh, and uh, not a bunch more rules, rituals, regulations. There are some things the Bible talks about, those are good. I'm talking about the things that the Bible doesn't talk about that people put on us. But I want to close in prayer today and uh, maybe, for, maybe there's one person 
maybe two people who say, that's been my experience. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you said, for so long I've rejected the message because I didn't like the messengers. And you realize today that doesn't take away the responsibility. Uh, maybe it's just that you've had a God, and you've talked about God, but, but you haven't really wanted Jesus. And you realize that that's not just a little bit off. Jesus calls that, that's antichrist. And if that's the case, or maybe you're here today and for the first time you've always said, I'm okay, I don't need it. And you realize that complacency when you have the opportunity is something that he takes very serious. And so you don't want that to be you. So as I pray, you have the opportunity to invite, and we're going to invite this Jesus who is humble and gentle into our lives to save us. And uh, if that's, if there's one or two who are here today. So let's pray. As we wrap this up, Lord, we come before you and, and we see that today you're speaking to the crowd and you're giving some very strong warnings that they need to hear. And so we come before you and Lord, I trust that we've all come to, to you and we've experienced that refreshment and uh, that in our learning of you, it leads to greater refreshment. But Lord, for that one, that one or, or that two that might be here today, who's never come to that place to experience the Jesus of the Bible, who is gentle and humble, we look to you and we say, I want you. I want you, the Jesus of the Bible. I want you to come into my life. Your invitation has come to me, so we want to come to you. And we pray that you forgive us of our sins. We thank you for paying the price for everything we've ever done. Our desire is that as we learn of you now, we grow in you, that you do your work in our life and you lead us to a place of even greater refreshment as we know you better and better. And we invite you to lead our our lives, guide our lives, and grow us into who it is that you want us to be. Father, I thank you for each and every person here, their hunger for you, their hunger for the word. And I pray, God, that your spirit and your word coming together would do its deep work in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week.